0: don't forget to subscribe rate and review the podcast as it really does help to give the show a little boost and for that i'm always very grateful by now you will know that i love MasterChef and how much i love japan i'm also obsessed with radio 4's the kitchen cabinet so this week's guest was really exciting for me Tim was all geared up to cook me all of his choices, and in a complete moment of madness, I set him straight and told him he didn't actually have to cook the dishes. Seriously, what on earth was I thinking? Note to self, if Tim Anderson offers to cook for you, always say yes. I will continue to kick myself while you enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Tim Anderson. Tim, at the age of just 26, was the youngest ever winner of MasterChef. Since winning back in 2011, Tim has carved out a very impressive career in food, working as a chef, a consultant, and a food writer. He is, much to my enormous envy and admiration, a staple of the Radio 4 food panel show, The Kitchen Cabinet. Tim has said his proudest career moment to date has to be the launch of his first cookery book, Nanban, Japanese soul food, and the opening of his acclaimed restaurant of the same name in the heart of Brixton. During his time on MasterChef, the judges declared that Tim gave them the best culinary explosion they had ever seen on the show. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me. I mean,
0: that's a pretty impressive statement coming from the MasterChef judges.
1: I think there may have been a few literal explosions, (laughs)
0: um,
1: memory serves.
0: I have to say that when we were setting this up, you seemed to be under the impression that you had to make me each of the seven Desert Island (laughs) dishes. And I've been kicking myself ever since for setting you straight because... I could have been tucking into a Tim Anderson tasting menu.
1: You know what? I think I might have one of them in the fridge, <gasps> unless my wife took it to, lunch, took oh, it, took it to work lunch. That
0: wasn't me fishing, by the way, but that <laughs> is an excellent result. <laughs> so despite the heaps of praise piled on you by the judges and MasterChef, you say that looking back on the experience, you're sort of slightly embarrassed by your experience. Is that true?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm proud of it, um, and it was a lot of fun, and I would love to do it again. Like, I'd love to actually... If somebody said, you know, we're having like a an all stars Master Chef, which I really think they should. Oh do, my
0: god, they should definitely do that.
1: I would do it in a heartbeat because. I don't really care if I win or lose. I never did. And that's probably not the right attitude. But that just meant I had fun the whole time. Mm. And I did my best.
0: And ultimately, probably contributed annoyingly to everyone else's, you know, but you won. (laughs)
1: Well, yeah. The thing is, like, you don't necessarily have to be the best chef. You just have to be the one that makes the fewest mistakes, because that's how you go out. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's a little embarrassing. I can't watch the show that I was on. Like, I have DVDs of it that they gave me, but... It's just the, like, I made so many mistakes and did so many stupid things.
0: But also so many amazing things.
1: E, some, yeah, a few. But
0: don't don't you think that's sort of the age that we're living in? Everything is documented, whether it's just on a blog or in print or on TV. And so it's it's sort of... Obviously, we're all going to have natural evolutions and growth, but it's all yeah. documented, which makes it quite stressful to sort of be able to look back on. It's That's not true. something our parents ever had to deal with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I think a lot of people are the same. I don't even like to look back on almost anything I've done. No, uh, after a few years, even because I just think, man, that was not good enough. I because yeah. you're always improving. Yeah. So you look at the things that you did before that maybe you were proud of, and. Some of them you're not yeah. so proud of it anymore.
0: <laughs> but also that's interesting that you say if you went and did it now, obviously, you know, you'd be way better. You're, you know, you've had yeah. all this experience, but <laughs> but wouldn't there be so much more pressure? Like you have something to lose this time, whereas that's you didn't true. before.
1: Yeah, I have a more of a reputation, yeah. there, I guess. But no, it's, it still doesn't matter because it's fun. Like it's fun to compete. It's fun to kind of like pull out every, you know, every trick in the book that you have. Try to put on a show, because yeah. that's what Master Jeff is, is it's TV.
0: How can we make this happen? I want this all-star lineup to happen. I don't
1: know. I've, <laughs> I've, I've told them a million times they hey, should do this. We'll start
0: a campaign. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in Wisconsin, and we're now going to start with the first Desert Island dish. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: Okay, so I've thought about this, and I figure I had to go with the one that gives me the most sort of emotional response, because there are a lot of dishes that, like, are nice and comforting and remind me of home. But the one that really takes me back is Wisconsin Bratwurst. Oh, right. So we have a certain kind of Bratwurst from Wisconsin. There's a lot of German immigrants that came there. And the Bratwurst in Wisconsin are a little bit different from the German ones. They're a coarser grind, and they've got a lot more seasoning. Like, they're saltier. They're, they've got a lot of marjoram and nutmeg and fennel in them. And I just had my butcher make me some recently for a thing I'm working on. And I tasted it, and it was like... Being back home in Wisconsin, oh, that's like so nice. It, they yeah, There's something about the texture as well, like the way the the casing snaps and you, oh, you cook them in beer before you grill them. You like poach them gently in beer with onions, so they have that beery, malty flavor.
0: Yum! And yeah, what, would delicious. you have that in a bun like a hot dog?
1: Yeah, and then the rest of it is you, you have it just like a normal hot dog or bratwurst, whole grain mustard, ketchup, sauerkraut. Have some sauerkraut on the go, but it's the it's the sausage itself and that juicy, salty porky flavor. Yeah, really. That evocative. takes me back. Yeah.
0: You said that when people think of American food, they tend to think Southern food and burgers and hot dogs. But there is much more to American food than that, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there's so much more. I think that it's the immigrant communities that have sort of settled in different places and and mix with the local produce and other local cultures, basically. So we have like everything sort of gets like warped from its original source material I guess. So we have another thing from Wisconsin called kringle, which is a Danish pastry that's sort of filled with jam or a nut paste and then formed into a ring. It's like a it's like a giant it looks like a giant donut but made out of a croissant like
0: oh my god so like like the original cronut. Uh
1: like yeah kind of but not uh, fried.
0: Okay, oh right.
1: Baked, but it's and you serve it like a pie, like you slice it up. Anyway, I went to Denmark years ago and I was like, we have this Danish thing in my hometown called Kringle. And they were like, oh, we have Kringle here. And they brought me this thing that was not a Kringle as I know it. So like something happened on the boat or you know, after many generations of Danish people living in Wisconsin that what was called Kringle became something new and and American that yeah. wouldn't be recognized in Denmark. So yeah, Amer- America's got a lot of stuff like that. Just little and you wouldn't ever know about them unless you went to these places. Like yeah. you don't really get Kringle outside of wisconsin no
0: i've never heard of it but i love i love that like the evolution of food where you can actually see it going from one place to another and yeah then it gets tweaked and adopted
1: have you seen ugly delicious the yes. Netflix show yeah. so one of the there's an italian chef on there who said that if american italian food was in italy it would just be thought of as another region of italian food that's like so it wouldn't be thought of as inauthentic it would just be a different type of italian
0: food yeah that's so interesting yeah yeah, I love the sound of the book of recipes that your mom made you for you and your brother. It's such a great gift, and you said yeah. that you still use it today
1: all the time. Yeah, it's got some really great stuff in there. A lot of people have said to me when they see it that like they wish they had something like that. Yeah, if you wish you had one. You should just start doing it because definitely. That's all my mom did. She just, you know, got everything she had together and emailed relatives, and now we have this great document of
0: it's so nice what we eat. <laughs> All of the recipes in there um, sounded delicious. But I have to ask you about the um, candy bar salad. Because that, I mean, that sounds right. like one for the salad dodgers out there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well that Okay, so that's chopped up Snickers bars. Yeah. <laughs> green apple and Cool Whip. And Cool Whip is like a weird gelatinous pre-whipped whipped cream thing that you get in America. Sweetened. Um together. together. No, in a tub.
0: Oh, right. Okay.
1: I can't remember how the, I think it comes frozen. You have to like thaw it out.
0: Oh, right. Okay. It's quite
1: weird stuff almost like a moose, But anyway, it's just that mashed up. I think, you know, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> but I think there's a kernel of goodness there. I think that you could take those flavors, chocolate, caramel, peanuts apple, cream, you could make something kind of delicious. Out of yeah. It. Yeah. And
0: I, I like that she's playing fast and loose with the term salad.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, I realize that the word salad, if you go back a few decades in America, salad means like anything you want it to mean. Oh, great. Like think about <laughs> so what we call egg mayo and tuna mayo here, we call egg salad and tuna salad in America. It's not salad. It's just mixed with mayonnaise. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but that's what you find. And there's other kinds of weird like uh, jello salads that we had in the 70s yeah salad's not like not not salad no for most of american <laughs> in history the
0: traditional sense yeah well we've learned something here today Tim. right um the second desert island dish is the first dish that you learned to cook
1: all right so this is a tricky one because it kind of depends on what qualifies as cooking okay i would say mac and cheese because that's the first thing i can remember like getting out a pan and Doing the thing, but it was still from a box.
0: Yeah, because I was going to say in America, mac and cheese from a box is is pretty common, isn't yeah. it? Whereas I don't, I don't know if we have that over here.
1: We have the like um the cup noodle version, where you put everything in a mug and add hot water, and it, it can be creamy and kind of like mac and cheese, but yeah, more like a soup. But yeah, no, it's um Kraft is the big brand, and it's like a powder packet and pasta. You do have to add like fresh ingredients; you need to the milk and butter. It's,
0: it's Kind of a weird shortcut, isn't it? Because it, it's, it's not... Um...
1: It's not a just-add-water kind of thing. No. like it, it does require a little bit of And cooking.
0: making the original <laughs> isn't that much more work than That's that, true,
1: actually, because yeah. the original would be...
0: <laughs> just flour, butter, flour, butter. cheese. <laughs>
1: exactly. The, the main thing you're not doing is adding real cheese to it.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, which, I guess, makes a lot of difference. But that was probably the first thing I ever cooked, like, in a very basic way. That was um, the first thing I ever... That required like a heat source, I yes. guess. You know? <laughs> but I also I went through a weird phase in high school of making um, sandwiches. Just like uh, again, I don't think that counts either. But oh, no, I would get really that definitely counts. I get quite serious about it. Like uh, make my own dressings and yes,
0: we're coming on to the sandwich question in a oh, minute. Yeah. So we will get onto that but um you got into japanese food at a really young age sort of yeah. watching iron chef which was yeah. one of the first televised cooking competitions wasn't it and you it were was 13 and then from there you went to la to study japanese history so you really got the bug i what, did what was what was iron chef for anyone who hadn't seen it and what was it about it that really grabbed your attention
1: it's a cooking competition show uh from japan where there are Four Iron Chefs, they're called, which are um, supposed to be some of the best chefs in their field. They have a Chinese, Japanese, French, and Italian Iron Chef. And then they'd have challengers, also amazing chefs, come into what they called Kitchen Stadium. They'd unveil a secret theme ingredient for that um, battle and then they'd have an hour to come up with a multi-course feast, which with each dish using that ingredient.
0: That uh, sounds great.
1: It's amazing, and not only like is the format great, and the 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 cooking is amazing. It's just the production is incredible. Like the host of it is this guy named uh, they called him Chairman Kaga, who was uh, a theater actor from Japan, and he was like he wore like sequin capes and. Had this incredible hair. He was of like Liberace. He did. Yeah, he was like amazing. Just this great <laughs> personality. And then they'd have this play-by-play, like you'd have from a like a sports match, going back and forth between two uh, commentators and and the judges as well. So it was like the, it was like watching sport. and I was never into sports, but I was into food. Yeah,
0: the culinary <laughs> equivalent to the Super Bowl.
1: Yeah. So there was that. Just the fact that it was a great format and a great show. But then also it was like food I'd never seen before. Both that level of cooking and the Japanese stuff itself. Yeah. So that's what got me into it. I was into some other like Japanese stuff, like J-pop and uh, video games and stuff. But it was the food that really like hooked me.
0: And you said that growing up, there wasn't a huge amount of Japanese food in Wisconsin. So what was the first Japanese food that you tasted?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I would say sushi, but I I don't know if it's actually true. Because we had, actually, when I was eight years old, a Japanese exchange student come. Oh, perfect. And she made us some stuff, but I, I was, like, too young to remember it. Yeah. Um. So, it was probably something then. Also, weirdly, I grew up with soy sauce all the time because there's a Kikoman factory in Wisconsin. Oh,
0: right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um. So, we always had kind of, like, a Japanese flavor in a lot of our food. It was in the air. It was. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it, I think, so, sushi was probably the one, like, when I went to a Japanese restaurant, that was probably the first thing I had, and I didn't like it. Really? No, not at all at first. It was like the it was mainly the seaweed, the nori, like I just that was not a flavor I was at all familiar with yeah. or a texture. So yeah, I I eventually like acquired the taste for sushi, but I always was more into the sort of soul food, izakaya stuff, like fried rice and yakitori and I always loved udon and soba noodles.
0: Yum. This was a mistake to record this before Before, Sorry. I
1: could probably <laughs> um, knock up some noodles, actually.
0: <laughs> the third Desert Island dish is the best dish you've ever eaten.
1: Kind of a tricky one, because it depends on how you define the best dish. There are three dishes that I thought were so beautiful that they almost made me cry. <gasps>
0: oh my goodness, tell us about that.
1: One of them was seared foie gras with strawberries at this French restaurant at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, which is one of the first like nice meals, fine dining meals I ever had that was an uh, incredible incredible dish just perfectly balanced then two others were at the fat duck the snail porridge which i didn't think i thought it would be good i didn't think it would be amazing
0: it, it's amazing
1: it blew me away <gasps> like just the the flavor and the texture and everything not what i expected it to be like i thought it would be quite weird but actually it's just a kind, it's almost like comfort food really there's a lot of garlic and mushrooms in there and, and the oats like the texture of that's really Comforting and soothing. That was a beautiful dish. And then the sound of the sea, which is the one that they serve with the iPod that plays sound yep. of the sea. That also was like amazing. Mm. I didn't think that would be as affecting as it was because I don't even really like the sea. Oh, really? but, um, <laughs> uh, but it was also just a really flavorful, beautiful dish.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. Because those um, fat duck dishes are ones that you do hear a lot about. So it's really nice to hear. I I haven't been at my sort of um, bucket list, but um, it's really nice to hear that they live up to expectation. Yeah. With all the hype, you worry that maybe it wouldn't, but they are amazing.
1: No, it is. The fat duck is kind of like a a very special, unique place because they really just don't... They execute everything so well, but also they don't like hold back. They they don't make any... um, effort to sort of rein themselves in if they have a crazy idea they just really go for it and they do it right and it it really works
0: that's so fun
1: yeah and not a lot of places have the balls to do that you know yeah
0: (laughs) and and the fact that you know when you're eating something that someone's had a lot of fun creating it i think that probably makes it taste better yeah you can like
1: it's it's a cool place and it's a um i feel like everybody should go there once in their life if yeah. they can okay
0: you've convinced Sorry, me. It's, ha- it's happening
1: yeah but actually like so those are the best dishes like experiences i probably had but they're not the my favorite foods like the best they're not the things i crave Yep. so the best dishes like i don't know that's a much harder thing because it would be something like a bowl of ramen yeah that i could eat weekly or even daily you know those are also the best dishes in different yep. ways yeah
0: that's why it's a very hard question to answer, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so after graduating from college, you moved to Japan and you lived there for two years. Tell us about that because you were teaching over there, weren't you?
1: Yeah, it was basically a working holiday. Anybody who is graduating from college, or university, you don't know what to do with your life, you should probably go to Japan because it's just fun. Yeah, they pay well and like it's a great experience.
0: And what were you? Te- you were teaching English.
1: English, yeah, yeah. And, as an assistant. Like it's a really easy. silly job
0: yeah can you speak Um, japanese
1: a little yeah. I, I was much better when i lived there but i've forgotten a lot watashi
0: wa maji desu
1: very good yes yoroshiku <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no i've forgotten a lot but i can still read menus and stuff and that's, that's what important. matters yeah
0: yeah and so whereabouts were you like had you had you been before you decided to move there
1: yeah i went on a like a, a package tour when i was 18 just after i graduated high school it was like a graduation present from my parents
0: that's a good graduation present.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. My dad came with me, and and one of my best friends. So that was for two weeks. And I got a little bit, you know, got to see Tokyo and Kyoto, and just sort of, you know, just barely scratched the surface. Then I went back in 2005 on a research grant, study local food museums, which was amazing. Uh, and then yeah, I I moved there in when was that 2008 six six, and I came here in 2008. But I, I lived in Fukuoka Prefecture in a city called Hita Kyushu, which is in the south. It's on the island of Kyushu, which is like, i would never been there before. And that is amazing. That is, it's very different from like Tokyo or Osaka or anything in the middle. It's much kind of more rough and ready.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, Fukuoka is a really like big modern city. It's always listed as one of the, like the best places to live in the world. But the food's incredible, like down in, everywhere in Japan. But I think especially in Kyushu, you get a lot of... Because um, like,
0: are there regional variations?
1: Huge. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of rivalries, like Italy or France. But in the South, you get a lot of surprising like foreign influence. There's a lot of Chinese and Korean sort of expat communities there. Um, there's a history of Americans being there because of naval bases that are around the South. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's a, a very old history of Dutch and Spanish traders and Portuguese. So you get a lot of very interesting, kind of weird food down in the South.
0: Yeah. What was the weirdest thing that you encountered?
1: Probably basashi, which is uh, horse meat sashimi, which is a specialty of Kumamoto. Which I didn't really like at first, but I went back and I had it a few more times, and I actually quite I really like it.
0: <laughs> so so literally raw raw horse, was...
1: but they raise the horses the way you would livestock, like of yeah, yeah, they don't it's not just, just like, like... <laughs> shoot a horse. And, um...
0: It's not My Little Pony. No, yeah.
1: no. Uh, so the the meat's like really well marbled, and it's really like got a clean, fresh flavor. And you have it with uh, thinly sliced onions and shiso and ginger. It's it's really nice. Mm-hmm. And also, I think because I've um had horse. A variety of other ways and i think raw is one of the best ways to have it oh really yeah it can get quite tough if you cook it even a little bit so
0: okay that's interesting it's so interesting isn't it how different countries we like sort of when you when you said that i sort of gasped about about the horse but (laughs) i mean it's just it's just a different cult there's no no wrong or right is there it's It's no worse than eating
1: any other mammal of
0: course not it's just strange (laughs) like it's just my reaction is kind of interesting because why
1: yeah, no. I mean, also the fact that it's raw
0: yeah, will yeah. <laughs> put people off.
1: But yeah. <laughs> it's perfectly safe and perfectly delicious. So why not?
0: Yeah, why not? Mm. Okay, the most important question of the day. It's the fourth Desert Island dish. What is your favorite sandwich?
1: Uh, I'm going to say a Reuben the Reuben sandwich is an excellent sandwich. It's one of the only sandwiches <laughs> that you can, that is a meal, like a, you could have it for dinner. Yeah. It's oh, not like a lunch how, sandwich. I like how you're
0: <laughs> sort of doing a sales pitch for the sandwich. Like, <laughs> well, um, But no, it is an excellent sandwich.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's like something you could have with coleslaw and that's your dinner. Like most sandwiches are not substantial enough. They don't have enough flavor to really, they're a, a lunch,
0: Okay. Oh, right. you know, okay. I, yeah. I think, but yeah. not a A Reuben. daytime meal, not a dinner. A, a
1: Reuben is a big pile of meat and sauerkraut that and cheese that happens to have bread on either side of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's amazing. The was
0: that um, one of the sandwiches that featured in your teenage years?
1: Yeah, we had Reubens quite a lot growing up. They were kind of a treat though. Like, like I said, they're not like a, a normal day to day sandwich because they're so kind of over the top. And...
0: Yeah. You couldn't have one of them every day. <laughs>
1: no. I mean, my favorite sandwich as a normal go-to sandwich would be a club.
0: Also a great, a great sandwich. It's a
1: great sandwich. It's also like a cut above because it's, it's got various elements and it's got the bread in the middle and it's toasted and you have to put a bit of effort into it. So yeah, I love a club. I wish you could find clubs on more menus like in London.
0: Yeah. Cause in America, that's you see them on most menus yeah you? you go to a yeah. diner you go to delicious. a deli
1: always get a club sandwich
0: mm. and they're quite hard to mess up in that sort of setting so yeah right they, there should be more of them as yeah, so right. they've
1: got enough mayo and enough salad and enough bacon they're a great sandwich yeah it doesn't right. even have to be good
0: bread no <laughs> no in fact it should be bad yeah, bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after two years in japan you moved to london but you weren't actually working in food at that time were you what were you doing <laughs>
1: Oh, my God, that's a long story. So when I first came here, I got the only job I could get, which was um, as a travel agent for a company that focused on Asia. So I was meant to be their Japan, one of their Japan specialists. They sent me to Burma and Thailand and Taiwan to do recce there. So that was my first two months in the UK was not in the UK. I moved here and immediately (laughs) went back to Asia, actually. And then when I got back, they made me redundant. Oh. Um, So, because it was the financial crisis, it was 2008, and also there was um, all kinds of political and terrorist problems in Asia at the time. So, I was out of there, which is fine. I didn't want to be a travel agent.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: But I was unemployed for a while. Then I finally got a job as a beer salesman. Oh. Yeah. And that lasted a little while. It was a very tough gig. I'm not a very good salesman. And then I went on to be a beer buyer at a supermarket and then I ran a pub. Oh, um, so you
0: did all sorts.
1: Yeah, mainly with beer.
0: And and moving to the UK was was that any way influenced by the sort of UK food scene or was it? I
1: didn't know any, no, okay. I mean I came here because of my wife. Okay. She's English. We met in Japan and looking at different kind of Visa situations, it seemed like it would be easier for me to come here.
0: Okay.
1: So yeah, I came here and I, I honestly like I knew almost nothing about the UK. <laughs> Um I knew all the stereotypes.
0: It's very brave.
1: Well, yeah, I don't know. I was mostly worried about the weather. Oh. <laughs> which I still yeah, hate well, to be <laughs> honest.
0: Um, Sorry about that.
1: <laughs> I'm not used to it yet after after 9 years of being here. But the food was it's great. Like I always really loved beer and cheese. Oh, because, you've come to the right place. Well, yeah, yeah, and and that's a Wisconsin thing too. So, I knew like when I first Found out about a plowman's lunch. I was like, "This is all I need." Hello, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) I found my country. (laughs) A bit
1: of pork pie, a bit of good cheese, good bread, and a nice pint of ale.
0: Yes, you're so right. Very is.
1: It's a great thing to eat.
0: We should talk about them more. (laughs) So then you entered MasterChef, and as so many people's stories go, you sort of entered on a whim and never really dreamt that you would get on the show let alone
1: no there's thousands of applicants i didn't it, it's an easy thing to do like you fill out this application online and like it, it like it's easier than applying for a driver's license yeah like it's and then you it's just so, forget about it exactly and like y- you never think that something like that is going to go anywhere you think oh that's for the other talented people who, yep. who do it so when i got a phone call i got a phone call maybe a month or two later i was really surprised uh, and then it just went from there. Yeah, did an interview and then an audition.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, and then yeah, the the show itself.
0: And how what, how was the actual show? Like, it was, was fun. It was scary.
1: Sometimes it was scary. It was there was a lot of stress. Like because every episode you're in, you're doing something new and the, and you don't know if you're gonna. You don't know what you're doing. Like yeah. <laughs> and you you just don't know if you're gonna make it. Yeah. Um, especially with the time constraints, like some of them are just like. You really are always up against it, and it, it, it was a lot of pressure. But every day was fun, too, especially because you got to go to so many cool places and work with some amazing chefs. Yeah. We had Michelle Rue Sr. and Jr.
0: as I mean, guests on our
1: series. I mean, incredible. Yeah. And we got to work with Yotamoto Lengi and Alexis Gautier. I got to work with Wiley Dufresne in New York, which was unbelievable. So I mainly just have... I have nothing but fond memories of it. Yeah, there yeah. were some times that were really like hard, but...
0: Yeah, and then you went on to win, which was just, it must have been a very surreal moment.
1: Yeah, I didn't really, it didn't really sink in. I was in like kind of disbelief for a while. And then because there's a delay, like when it's, there's a good three months between when it wraps and when the final airs, longer than that, five months, nothing happened. Yeah,
0: did you you sort of have moments of thinking, oh, maybe I just made the whole thing up? Like, did I? (laughs) Uh,
1: It was more like, because nothing happened immediately, I didn't think anything would happen. I okay. thought the show will go out because there's no prize. You're not given money or, you know, any kind
0: um, of... Excuse me, you get a trophy. <laughs> I did. I got
1: I got a very... I got the the big clunky trophy. I don't know why they gave me that one. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I kept my day job. I kept working at the pub. I didn't give notice until after the final aired because I just. But
0: that's very sensible.
1: Well, yeah, because you just—I didn't think anything would happen, but then, of course, all kinds of things did happen.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Let's pause and talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish that you eat the most often.
1: It's got to be ramen.
0: (laughs) I was expecting nothing (laughs)
1: less. Which is like, like, yeah, really a predictable thing to say, especially as a as a ramen chef.
0: Um, What is the secret to? making a great ramen at home. Because it's all about the broth.
1: It is. But actually, what people don't realize is the what goes into the... It doesn't have to be about the broth itself. Okay. Like, it doesn't have to be about the liquid that you get from boiling pork bones. The way you season it is probably more important than the actual broth. Okay. Like, if you buy off-the-shelf uh, chicken broth, not from a cube, but real chicken broth, it's not great, but you can season that up and make it really delicious. So, like, if you put... Like miso is a good choice for seasoning ramen broth because it adds some body. Soy sauce and mirin combined, so you get a bit of sweetness with the saltiness. Putting a little bit of dried mushrooms in there to sort of amplify the umami. Um, and then always putting a little bit of fat on it um, for texture and also for extra aroma and flavor. So, like melted duck fat is great right. on ramen broth. A little bit of sesame oil. Some of it, like just a nice rich, yeah. oily fat flavor will make a decent broth out of even like a very mediocre broth, you know what I mean? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's really important. Also, I got to say, using decent noodles and cooking them properly. Like, if you buy the fresh egg noodles from a supermarket, they're usually, like, too soft even to begin with. Like, ramen noodles should have a lot of bite. They should have a lot of bounce. Okay. Um, And I always say, if you're shopping for ramen noodles and you can't get fresh ones, which are hard to get... The instant ones are usually better than the dried ones. Weirdly. That's
0: interesting. Yeah, yeah, because
1: they start their life as like a good noodle, mm-hmm. a good fresh ramen noodle, and then they get fried, and that instantly dries them out, but they retain their kind of structure. So as long as you use those and don't overcook them, keep them nice and firm, you'll have uh, good ramen at home.
0: Those are ex- – I mean, yeah, I feel overwhelmed with those. Ex- <laughs>
1: <laughs> and if you have good broth and good noodles, that is 90% of the ramen battle. Then you yeah. add some spring onions and an egg – and you're having great ramen.
0: Yes. Where, <laughs> where's the best place you've ever had ramen?
1: Ooh, ever had? My God. Most people ask about in London. Oh, sorry. No. Which I always have a. I'm ready for oh, well, the answer.
0: Well, I'm happy to hear that answer. <laughs> well,
1: Nanban, of course. Oh yeah. No. Well, of
0: course, of <laughs> course. That goes without saying.
1: No, uh, Kanada-ya is great, uh, and I like Tonkotsu as yes. well. They're yep. they're really good. But ever, I mean, wow. There, I've had a lot of ramen. But the one of them that stands out in my head is this miso ramen from Sapporo, a place called Kayaki, which used wok burners to stir fry pork mints and miso together in a bit of lard before they use that to season the broth. And so the, the miso kind of caramelizes and goes nutty and you get this lovely sort of rich porky flavor out of it. And it, it's quite a like heavy bowl. It's It's quite rich. But that, that one always stands out as one that I would like to have when I when I'm craving ramen, like that's the ramen I'm craving.
0: That sounds amazing. It's great. <laughs> so after winning a show like MasterChef, the food world is your oyster really, once once it's aired. Had it always been in your mind that you would one day open a restaurant?
1: I'd always wanted to open a restaurant, specifically a ramen shop, because when I moved to the UK, we didn't really have good ramen. That was back in 2008, and it was before Tonkotsu, it was before Bone Daddy's, it was before any of these new places that are doing good ramen. So I wanted to open a ramen shop back then just because I missed good ramen. Yeah. This was long before MasterChef was even on the radar. After MasterChef, like I won MasterChef, that's when we ramen shops were already starting to pop up so the kind of restaurant i wanted to do changed a bit like it it wasn't just about ramen anymore it's about southern japanese cooking and just some different kinds of japanese dishes that we hadn't seen here yeah because also like polpo had opened around then and i was like well if you can have uh, a regional italian restaurant why not a regional japanese one
0: definitely i i really like your story because it kind of feels like everything's Sort of happened at the right time without sort of overthinking it. It's just sort of, no, but it's sort of slotted into place, hasn't it? Like you move to the UK for other reasons and then notice that gap in the market. And I don't know, it just sort of all seems to tie together very nicely.
1: Yeah. Well, I've been lucky in um, the fact that like people have wanted me to do what I want to do. You know, (laughs) like I've, um, been able to open restaurants and write cookbooks because people have come to me and said we want you to do this and that's that's amazing and i'm 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 happy to be the guy who can do it yeah that's that's really nice and um yeah i think you're right there's a lot of like i think that if i had opened a ramen shop well first of all i couldn't have done it back in 2008 it might not have worked it might have been like too ahead of the curve yeah because there is that risk of like Doing something nobody's ever seen before, and people yeah. don't want it.
0: Yeah, being the first is actually kind of risky. Yeah. Had you worked in lots of different restaurants, like wh- what are the realities of deciding that you want to open a restaurant and then actually making <laughs> that happen?
1: Uh, it's a lot of trial and error. I mean, the process of opening Nanban took from the time I started pitching it to like investors and looking for premises. Uh, to the time we actually opened was about three years. Oh right, okay. Yeah, and it was a completely different set of partners that I had in the end, and a completely different location. I was looking in Hackney and Shoreditch in the beginning. I uh, wound up in Brixton, which is, as you say, that's actually just because that—that's what came to me. Yeah, basically. And Brixton's a great place.
0: Brixton's the best.
1: Um, yeah, and it's not—not not quite so saturated like other parts of London are with with yeah. restaurants. No,
0: I think that's actually a really fitting location. Yeah definitely.
1: And actually, there are two other ramen shops there now. I think one of them was there before us, Koi. But it's like, it's a great place with, yeah, really good food, but still everything's really casual there. Yeah. Which I like. Yeah. Like it's one of the sort of least pretentious places in London.
0: Yes. I definitely think that is probably a true statement. Mm. Definitely, probably. Those those <laughs> don't go together. But we're on to the sixth Desert Island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish.
1: All right. So this is slightly a funny one, but um, I'm going to say anything with ox cheek.
0: Right, okay.
1: Because it's so it's so easy to cook.
0: Okay. How do you how do you cook it?
1: So, my favorite way to cook it is to do it uh, with a teriyaki glaze, but low and slow on the barbecue. So, you got to cook it on the barbecue at about 120-130 degrees for like 8 hours. Okay. And in that time, it'll the the glaze on it, you have to keep applying it. It'll sort of reduce down to like the sticky soy caramel almost. And then it, be, it gets a lovely smoke ring around the outside, and it's it's amazingly melt in your mouth tender and really beefy, like a concentrated beef flavor. Everybody loves it. It's easy. It's a cheap cut. You can do. I've also done oxchik rendang, which is just an oven thing, stick it in the oven for six hours.
0: So a similar kind of thing, but in the oven.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Like it's great because you can produce a, a lot of protein with not a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah.
0: For a dinner party, that is what you want, isn't it? It is.
1: And it reheats well as well. Like You can make it the day before and then put it back on the hob or in in the grill.
0: Yes. Do you get to throw many dinner parties?
1: We have... Not really. We have a big barbecue every summer because my wife's birthday is the day after mine. So we just... Oh, perfect. Um, Big barbecue in July. But other than that, no. I mean, it's not a big place anyway.
0: But you're a busy man, so... (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get a lot of people around. It's
0: it's definitely very hard. (laughs) If you do have people around, what do you make them for pudding?
1: Oh, actually, my wife usually makes the pudding.
0: Right. What does Uh, she make?
1: So one of her go-to recipes is uh, actually a Lisa Faulkner recipe. Oh, yeah. Lisa won MasterChef Professionals. Yes. I think the same year I was on. Anyway, she's great.
0: She won the Celebrity one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Sorry, not Professionals. Yeah. But she's got a couple cookbooks, and she there's an almond, orange, and passion fruit cake uh, recipe that's fantastic that my wife makes. Yum. And it's delicious. Yeah, that yeah. sounds really
0: <laughs> So you've written two brilliant books, Namban, and then more recently, Japanesey, which I absolutely loved. Thanks. Do you think people have preconceptions about Japanese food being difficult to cook?
1: Yeah, every, everybody I speak to, well, not everybody, but a lot of people I speak to when I say... You know, I cook Japanese food, and they say how much they like it, uh, but they never cook it. Uh, well, the main thing people always say is that they can't get the ingredients. Yeah. Which is just not true. It nice. just is absolutely not true. <laughs> I live in Lewisham. Our local, our nearest big supermarket is a Sainsbury's. That Sainsbury's sells dried shiitake mushrooms. It sells miso. It sells yuzu. It sells nori. Like yeah, that's it's so true. It sells. Pretty much everything you'd need to make a Japanese meal. Yeah. But even if you don't have that at your local supermarket, and by the way, I've seen this stuff on shelves at Tesco's in like rural Wales. No joke. Like the information age has made everybody a foodie and everybody wants to try this stuff. So it's out there. But even if you don't, if you can't get it at a shop, you can get it off the internet. Like yeah. it's funny. Cause um, if you look on Amazon for my cookbook, it comes up with the, the customers also bought these items thing. And one of them is dashi powder. The Japanese stock powder, yeah, which is great because I'm like so again, pe- People understand like you can get these ingredients at the same place you buy the cookbook and have it delivered, yeah, no matter where you live. So yeah, I think that that's a big thing. People think that they can't get the ingredients, but you, you absolutely can. And then, but then also people don't know quite how to use them. They don't really. They're not familiar with mirin or miso, but that's just a matter of of tasting them and getting to know some basic recipes. And then once you have the basic recipes, like a sweet miso sauce or a ponzu. You can understand how to apply them to almost anything. Like It's, it's very easy because Japanese cooking tends to be quite simple. It tends to be like fresh ingredient, cook quickly, add powerful umami seasoning, and there's your Japanese meal. Have it with a bowl of rice and miso soup. So once you're familiar with those, then it, it's very easy to actually kind of Japanify any kind of meal.
0: Um, I made the biggest faux pas the other day. Did you? Yeah, my fiancé is half Japanese. Oh. So we have loads of Japanese ingredients at home, and I love furikake. Oh, yeah. Um, But I put it on some soup (laughs) the other day. Like, (laughs) I made a broth, and then I sprinkled it with furikake, and he was like, what are you doing? That's Uh. like putting ketchup on jelly. Um, but <laughs> um. <laughs> no, It's not quite as bad as that. Just
1: uh, put some rice in there. You can tell them it's ochazuke. Okay, yes. Yeah. I'm
0: going to have that one up my sleeve. <laughs> can we talk a bit about the kitchen cabinet? Because sure, I yeah. love the kitchen cabinet. Thank you. Is it really fun to do?
1: It's really fun. It's It's great to travel around the country and yeah. go to some places you really I probably wouldn't go to most of these places like if it wasn't for the show
0: and how big is the audience
1: it depends um probably no less no fewer than 100 people oh
0: my goodness yeah That's that, that would be a
1: small one we've had up to like 300
0: oh my god i was imagining like 20 people
1: no no it's quite it's quite a big deal <laughs> actually maybe the smallest one. we did one at a uh, american air force base at lake that one was pretty small <laughs> just because it's it's quite a contained space community uh but it was still a really fun show
0: what is the weirdest question you've been asked and has anyone asked something that you you just don't know
1: oh yeah people ask do that's try, why <laughs> do
0: they try to trick you
1: no i mean people usually have quite genuine questions
0: okay. you can see how my mind works <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, there are a lot of technical things i can't feel like people will ask things about like you know why is my souffle not rising and i'm like well I don't know. Ask Michelle Rue. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But yeah, mostly the people want pretty basic cooking pointers, and and those are always good. I think the weirdest one I ever got was there was a couple in Dover who asked, uh, it was a a husband and wife, and husband said, I like to drink white wine, and my wife likes to drink red wine. What do I do? What do we do? Um, (laughs) And I was like, well, ignore it by the glass.
0: (laughs) What That's
1: I told like them they should start drinking ale instead. Like,
0: yeah, great answer, great answer. <laughs> just get yeah. the
1: wine issue out of the way and have a nice beer.
0: Yeah, that is a strange
1: question. It is
0: right. The final or get a divorce.
1: That's well... what I wanted to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very radio four. Yeah. Um. The final seventh desert island dish is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island.
1: Right. So and on the desert island, you're it's like castaway. You're just eating fish that you can but, yeah. catch. Right. So not fish, probably not coconuts. I think honestly, I'd have a plowman's. Yes, because there is no way I am gonna get cheese and good ale on a desert island. So yeah, and, and I'd, I'd really go for it. I'd have I'd have the whole you know pork pie. I'd have good onion chutney, many cheeses. Got to be a sharp cheddar. Got to be a blue. At least one kind of washed dry like a brie or a camembert. Bit of fresh fruit like some pears would be nice, and good like brown bread. Yep. Yeah, and a lot of it.
0: Yeah. Yes. No. <laughs> don't worry. We're, yeah. we're going generous with yeah. portions. Are you going to have anything to have for pudding, or just going to leave it at the ploughman's?
1: No, just the ploughman. Yeah. Just, I, just like I, I, I can eat need a, a lot pudding. of cheese. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like
0: how can, much cheese are we talking? <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> a lot. Just keep it coming. And <laughs> um, <laughs> the whole wheel.
0: You're also allowed to take with you a luxury item, which can be anything you like.
1: Right. Well. I don't know if it counts, but I'd probably bring my cat.
0: I know, we've had lots of pets. Yeah. <laughs> Baloo can de- definitely join the menagerie.
1: Baloo has FIV, which is like HIV for cats. Oh,
0: right. Yeah,
1: which is not a problem, but he can't go outside because he can't uh encounter other cats.
0: Oh, my God, Tim. So if
1: he was on a desert island, it'd be great because there's no other cats around and he could roam free.
0: <laughs> oh, my God, I kind of just want to send you to the desert island just specially for Baloo. <laughs> With Baloo, yeah. <laughs> I think- he might be
1: overwhelmed. He's quite a... A homebody, actually.
0: Aren't we all, Tim? (laughs) Thank you so much for letting us hear your Desert Island Dishes.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Don't forget to go to the website, www.desertislanddishes.co, for the full list of episodes, plus the recipes I've created inspired by each episode. Whilst I know you don't get to taste the guest dishes, I hope my weekly recipe helps to bring it all to life. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to come and say hi on Instagram at MadeByMargie. See you there.